0: We usually start these podcasts with audio from the trailer of the film we're talking about, but a trailer is yet to be released for Standing Up for Sunny. Hello, and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eales. In this episode, I'm joined by director Stephen Vidler, whose new film, Standing Up for Sunny, is set to screen at Cinefest Oz in Western Australia at the end of August. It's hard to believe Standing Up for Sonny is director Stephen Vidler's first film since Black Rock, uh, a heartbreaking high school drama starring Simon Linden, Rebecca Smart and Heath Ledger in his first feature film role. 22 years later and Veidler doesn't miss a beat with this tender, clever and very, very funny romantic comedy. As well as Standing Up for Sonny, we also dive into the making of Black Rock, as well as Steve's relationship with the late Heath Ledger. Steve shares a beautiful story about Heath about a quarter of the way through.
1: Anyway, enjoy. He does have a conscience in some way, but he's kind of like a, uh, just a a madman who can out drink, out 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 fun everyone all the time. Luke's interpretation of that was uh, probably more extreme than what I had written on the page or envisaged myself.
0: The day that we were going out to shoot the open water scenes, we were told that there were some dead whale carcasses that were bringing in real tiger sharks and great white sharks, and they'd been sighted in the area. We were told not to go in the water. But I could just see instantly that how talented Rhiannon was, and there was just, it really blew me away. There is still a bit of a a boys' club out there for sure.
1: And also with Dee Wallace, she gave me great input on the script for this to make her have a very pro-choice stance throughout the film. And the simple fact is, the movie, the whole thing occurs because a right-wing guy blows up a clinic.
0: Very organically, somehow, the name The Comet Kids popped up, and we sort of just kind of based the movie around that name. Like, it happened really quickly. We kind of thought, like, that's a really great name for a movie. Like, what is what, who are The Comet Kids? We just thought it was very, very important to uh, start writing more roles for women, and uh, women not just, as I said, as girlfriends, mothers, and people in love, but women who are their own people as we are. Stephen Vidler, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Firstly, I loved standing up for Sonny. Uh, in my review, I've said that uh, one of the film's strengths is that it reminds us to laugh more, even if it's at ourselves. Um, so congratulations on creating one of the funniest Australian films in a, in a
1: very long time. Oh, thanks so much. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the nicest thing I could have heard. Uh, look, that's absolutely uh, what we were aiming to do with the film. So it's fantastic that that's what you've taken away from it. Um so standing up uh, for sunny is
0: the first film that you've directed since black rock 22 years ago are you That's pre- correct. are you prepared and excited for that kind of attention again once this film starts reaching audiences uh, because <laughs> because in australia directors are very much the face of uh,
1: of most films um yeah look i'm 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 not so sure whether directors or, or, you know, whether I'm I'm necessarily the face of this film, we're certainly pushing RJ out in front of this one because it's, it's absolutely about that character. And I think his performance is, you know, the, really what, what's uh, carrying the film. Um, But yeah, I've I've had 22 years to get ready for this one. And uh, so I think I'm kind of prepared.
0: (laughs) Um so I want to go back to uh to BlackRock a bit. Um you were sure. en- you were enjoying a successful acting career in films like uh, The Umbrella Woman with Brian Brown and Rachel Ward, <laughs> and TV shows like A Country Practice before directing BlackRock. Uh take us back to that time and, and share some of your memories with us about uh about BlackRock.
1: Oh, I think it was one of those ones that seems to often be the case with people's first films that somehow they just magically fall into place really easily. Uh, It it gives you, uh, it gives the director a a, a very skewed vision of what what the reality of getting a film made uh, actually is. Uh, I just um, decided to take a a couple of years off um, acting and and went back to film school. I went to VCA uh, Swinburne in Melbourne and studied directing and felt that I needed a little bit more work on writing, so I then did a a uh, one-year postgrad at, at afters uh, in screenwriting, and I, I took the couple of shorts and little bits and pieces that I'd made to David Elphick, who was a producer that I'd worked with and, and really respected um, his work. He'd done, you know, things like Starstruck uh, and Newsfront at that stage, um, and I said, you know, would you be interested in producing a feature with me? And we worked very briefly, I think, for about four or five months on developing one project, which we got to a point where we weren't really happy. It was a, We were working with another writer. We weren't really happy with where that script was going. And Nick Enright, who had, um, was a friend of mine and who had been – had had the great fortune of um, having him be my acting teacher when I was at NIDA um, – and Nick at that stage had been nominated for his uh, screenplay for Lorenzo's Oil that he co-wrote with George Miller. They were nominated for a, an Academy Award uh, either the year before or two years before this. Um, and I just mentioned to Nick, look, we've we've just had a project fall over and we're looking for um, a potential film script. Do you have anything that might be suitable? And he'd just been commissioned uh, at that stage to write the theatre and education version of Black Rock, which was called a property of the clan, mm. and had been commissioned to write that um, for I, I can't remember now the name of the the community theatre company in Newcastle. So he'd just been doing all of the interviews with um, the local kids and all of his research, and he invited me to come to um, like a full dress rehearsal. Kind of you know a preview run through, and I was just blown away by this amazingly powerful piece of um, small community theatre. And he'd been commissioned off the back of that to then write the main stage version of that, um, which became Black Rock, the play for Sydney Theatre Company. So we developed the screenplay um, in in tandem with him developing the main stage play. So it was just kind of an absolutely fortuitous aligning of the stars that these things happened right at the same time and of course David Elphick was thrilled to have the opportunity to work with an Academy Award nominated screenwriter and Nick was thrilled to be uh, writing another screenplay uh, you know and discovering the screenplay version of it as he was discovering the main stage play version of it Uh, so it was just a you know a a wonderful gift for me as a a first-time director to to have two people like that feeding into my first film project wow um that's that's so great to hear all of that stuff
0: because as much research as you do you never find that kind of information out so uh, thanks for sharing that with us Oh, um, pleasure! The film wasn't uh, without controversy. I mean, people protested against the film because it's based on the murder of schoolgirl Lee mm. Lee, and uh, and it's partially filmed in Stockton, where her murder took place. How did that impact you uh, psychologically, and did it impact your creative approach to the film?
1: Um, it it was something that we were extremely um sensitive to and, and aware of, and we made approaches to um, Lily's mother um, and, um, you know, through her lawyers and let them know what we were doing at every stage and said that we were doing this and they had been aware of the uh, the community theatre piece, which um, there was, the only resistance really was, it was obviously quite confronting for um, Lily's family um, but what we tried to make clear was that we weren't telling that story we were telling a, a similar kind of story uh, it's it's not in any sense it's, you know a rip from the headlines this is the actual story of what happened because we didn't have that information, and we didn't want to intrude on the, the family, you know, to, to get the kind of personal insight into them and and, and into Lee. Um, but we felt that the story of a group of young people who closed ranks against the law and and against the investigation into this young woman's rape and murder um, was something that was really important. For us to explore as as part of our national culture, I mean, it's we really saw it as the dark side of Australian matehood, and there's you know it's something that's been lauded and 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 held up as a great virtue um, of you know the Australian male, but there is a dark side to it, and a, and a kind of fuzzy boundary at which that loyalty to your mates becomes greater than loyalty to what is right, to what is ethical, to society at large and to the law. And we thought that was a really important thing to explore and we thought it was particularly given the experience that Nick had had in interviewing and working with these young people in the area and seeing how kind of torn apart that community was and how divided it was around this issue, he thought it was an important thing for them, you know, to be able to unpack through, um, you know, an accessible kind of storytelling medium in uh, in film. Uh, did you ever have a discussion uh, with
0: Lee's mother regarding the making of the film uh, once the film came out?
1: No, we we tried to make that contact, and and for very understandable reasons. And I absolutely respect this. I, I have uh, we, my wife and I had our um, young daughter at that that time. She was three at that stage. So when you have small children, you you realise how incredibly ferociously protective you are of them, and mm. that to, to some extent they are absolutely your whole world. And I can't even begin to imagine. Uh, what her experience was or what, what pain she had gone through. Um, so, you know, we were completely respectful of her desire not to talk to us. Um, but you know, we, we, the offer was there. We, we were very willing to explain what we were doing and, and, um, you know, to, to try and communicate that but for understandable reasons she she didn't want to have any discussion
0: yeah i think uh, what you guys i think what you guys were trying to do with the film really does come through um um you had a very young cast including a brilliant uh, simon linden uh, rebecca smart yes. justine clark jessica napier and of course uh, heath ledger how did you go and, ke- uh, sorry
1: yeah and, and diana novakovich who uh, was uh, 15 turning 16 at that stage and it was just one of the bravest pieces of screen acting I, I think I you know, am aware of. She was incredible.
0: It really is. I remember seeing the film in school and yeah boy oh boy did it have an impact. <laughs> um, how did you go keeping this energetic and, uh, and enthusiastic young cast of actors in line? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, it, it was a little bit like herding kittens uh, <laughs> at some time but the upside of that is with all of that energy and enthusiasm, if it's channeled in the right way and if it's if it's directed towards the right things mm. there's just an absolutely uh, i can 't think of the right word just a, a boundaryless commitment to the moment mm. um, they absolutely threw themselves into. Every moment, no matter how confronting, no matter how unflattering to them personally, they, they were just all incredibly brave in going where they needed to go. Mm. And certainly, you know, the, the performances were not necessarily polished and you wouldn't expect them to be coming from a bunch of, you know, 15 to 19 year olds. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was so proud of those kids with how brave and how open they were. Mm. Uh, you worked
0: uh, with Heath again a few years later in two hands. Uh, can you tell us about your relationship with Heath
1: Ledger? Uh, I just, it it still breaks my heart to, mm. to talk about Heath. He, um, well, let's start, let's start at the beginning. Heath was the first person that we screen tested. We actually tested him for the lead role and uh, we my wife and I recently sold up our house in Sydney and we we're unpack- unpacking everything and I found the the original VHS tapes of Heath's screen test for the role of Jared in Blackrock. Um, and as I said, he was the first actor that we tested for that role. Christine King, our casting agent, had – uh, cast Heath in what I believe was his first, uh, and I think uh, I'm right in saying at that stage, his only other screen role, which was an ABC television series called Sweat. Mm. Um, and Simon Baker was uh, was in that as well. Uh, and Heath had played a an Olympic cyclist, you know, a, a cyclist in training for the Olympics, um, who was a, a closeted, gay man and his performance in that series was incredible and his screen test for jared was absolutely amazing And <laughs> the only reason that we didn't cast him was because he was so charismatic and so strong on screen mm. that after looking at it and discussing it we thought it's going to be really hard to find somebody to play Rico, the older surfer character, to, to find somebody to play that role who we believe can dominate this kid, mm. you know, who, who would sway this kid, you know, could, who could be essentially more charismatic <laughs> than Heath was on screen. Uh, so we really wanted him in the film, so we cast him pretty much immediately. We offered him the role of Toby, who's kind of the good-looking, you know, middle-class star of the school who Jared feels that he can't compete with. Um, but the story that I I tell everybody about Heath when they ask what it was like working with him, uh, my my little girl, uh, Phoebe, was, I think I said, like two or three at that stage, and we used her as the younger sister of Boyana, the character who was, who was raped and and murdered, Um, so she appeared in a a few scenes. Um, uh, So she was on set with my wife and, of course, all the the kids, the 17 to 19-year-old kids were kind of running around and being fun and very interested in each other and and everything else and completely disinterested in this little toddler that was, you know, sort of wandering around with nobody to play with. (laughs) Um, And Heath was the only one of them that actually – made time to come up and chat with this little kid and play with her um and he'd said you know we've got a little sister at home and i really miss her Uh, and he was you know i think that typified him as just an absolute sweetheart Mm. of a human being Mm. um yeah and, and an amazing actor That's so beautiful,
0: beautiful. Um, So following BlackRock, your acting uh, career took off and and you had roles in films like uh, The Thin Red Line, Underbelly and uh, more recently Rake. Uh, Were you focused only on being an actor during that time or was the desire to direct another feature film always there?
1: Oh, look, the desire was always there. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, as Liz Mulliner... Fantastic uh, casting agent used to be fond of saying, "It's polite. It's polite to wait till you're invited." <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, I had, uh, which is what is not an atypical experience with a number of films where they were, you know, up on Wednesday and dead on Friday. Mm. Um, one of them uh, was a, a romantic comedy, which is a genre that I absolutely love, and was at that stage quite difficult to get up in this. Country, and uh, we'd found another quite fantastic young actor who, also coincidentally, had been um, working out of Perth uh, by the name of Hugh Jackman. (laughs) And he'd done one TV series, um, Corelli, I think it was called, and we thought he was incredible and got his agent to you know, agree to attach him to this film. And we were running around like mad to all of the Australian exhibitors and distributors saying, we've got this rom-com, we've got this fantastic young actor, and we've got Portia de Rossi who had done some films. And they're like, well, we don't know who this guy is, and we don't know if he's going to um, amount to much. <laughs> is Portia de Rossi really funny? <laughs> um, so, yeah, we uh, <laughs> we were part of the ill-fated uh, Macquarie 9 Hoyt's Film Fund who who uh, were claiming they were going to raise 60 to 70 million to make a slate of Australian films and they kind of muffed the raising and raised I think about 8 million and we needed most of that for our film so they decided they wouldn't do that and made two other films instead. Um, so that one fell in a heap uh, and then quite a few years later uh, I <clears throat> wrote a... Uh, a screenplay for a uh, supernatural thriller. We had uh, we had an actress attached to that and we were offered f- complete funding out of Europe and the producer thought that he could get a better deal, so he said, no, thank you. <laughs> um, and this was 2008, late 2008, going into 2009, and one of our um, – kind of financial advisors who was helping us put the funding together was working for Deutsche Bank. And she said, I think you guys should really take this funding because there's uh, some black storm clouds on the horizon and some bad stuff is about to go down. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's not going to be that bad. We'll, we'll get the money from elsewhere. And of course the GFC happened <coughs> and all of the international independent financing just dried up mm. overnight. So that one fell in a heap uh, out of that. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, a couple of bad strikes
0: there. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. And so here we are with uh, Standing Up for Sunny. Um, uh, Before we get stuck into that, tell us uh, what it's about.
1: Uh, Standing Up for Sunny is a... It's a heartwarming coming-of-age romantic comedy about a young guy, very angry, isolated young guy with mild cerebral palsy, who's really pissed off at the world for looking at him differently and treating him differently. And it doesn't really matter to him whether people are being shitty to him or whether they're being extra kind to him. Either way, it just pisses him off that he's treated differently. Um, He's got a real chip on his shoulder. Mm. And He lives alone, he works alone, and he likes it that way. But because he's living in subsidised housing, the commission moves in another guy into his (laughs) two-bedroom apartment, and the other guy's this completely boundaryless, huge, blind Samoan guy who kind of takes up a lot of space. So he's trying to escape from him. He goes to the pub to, you know, drink away his sorrows, and – he can't even escape from it there while he's while he's there the girl that's on stage trying to do some comedy is heckled by this drunk asshole <laughs> and our guy just loses his shit and rips into this guy in a really hilarious way and everybody thinks he's fantastic and funny and the manager of the comedian hires him secretly to help her deal with hecklers because she can't do what he does mm. And he accepts this because if he, you know, if he does this job, he can then have the money to get rid of this other guy who's cluttering up his apartment. And in the process of working with her, she completely doesn't see him the way everybody else does. She doesn't treat him differently. And she calls him on his shit. And he starts to fall for her, and he starts to fall for stand-up. But to get anywhere with either of them he needs to crack open that kind of protective shell Mm. that he's built around himself and that he's built around his life. And, of course, the second she gets too close to him, he lashes out and pushes her away Mm. and tears down everything good that started to build up between them. But mm-hmm. well, you could never go back. No. You can never go back to your old life. <laughs> uh, it's a very clever film,
0: and the screenplay is razor sharp, and the comedy is is real laugh out loud stuff. Uh, where oh, did the thanks, Where did the idea for it come from?
1: Oh, uh, this one was a long time in in the making. It was initially I wrote it as uh, as a play, as an ensemble piece. Um, with most of the characters, I, I'd written them for actors that I knew and loved and had worked with who are very, very funny people who drew on their own insecurities and their own personal problems and issues for their comedy. And I wanted to write something for all of them and bring them all together. and And this piece was called Stand Up Therapy. And it was about a, a therapist who had a group therapy group who he just couldn't, keep control of and decided that he'd bring in a a stand-up comedian to work with him as kind of a fun thing. And the comedian was like, hey, you know, you guys are really funny and you could get up on stage and tell the world about all your problems and that'd be really funny. And of course, you know, it just opens up a Pandora box and um, creates more havoc than than it cures. And I realized it was probably a bit kind of sprawling for a play. So I rewrote it as film and that Ensemble piece got into um, Screen New South Wales have a fantastic, they now Create New South Wales, fantastic development lab uh, called Aurora, Mm. and I was lucky enough to get that project into Aurora and even luckier to work with an amazing woman, um, Meg LaFauve, who is um, a producer, writer, script developer. She wrote Inside Out for Pixar and uh, Captain Marvel, for Marvel and uh, I was lucky enough to work with her as my mentor on this project and she read the ensemble piece and said what you have here is an amazing story about this character Travis the guy with cerebral palsy and this girl Sunny um, the girl with bulimia forget all of the other characters um they're fun but you know that's all kind of banter and filler and clutter The real story is about these two mm. so go away Pare it down to these two um and at that stage it was kind of a, a missed opportunity at romance mm. um you know as i was talking through the story with you uh, i got to the point where he'd kind of you know reacted badly and lashed out and tore it all down mm. and in in the play that's where i'd left that character and she said we want them to get together at the end. Come on, <laughs> give us a give us a happy ending, for God's sake. Uh, so I uh, I bowed to her wishes uh, because she was right and that is what the audience wants. And uh, the the end pro, the end product of that workshop was pretty much the the script that we shot wow. with uh, with a few minor adjustments um i'm going to ask a question outside
0: of the box here because uh, i love drawing parallels while researching an artist's uh, career uh you were in the umbrella woman with brian brown as we spoke about earlier and and brian brown's name in that film was sunny uh, and one of the main characters in this film is sunny obviously is there a creative connection there
1: there is absolutely not a really creative <laughs> connection there. It never even occurred to me <laughs> there you go uh no he was he was sunny with an o yes. and she's sunny with a u yes. now, where, actually where sunny ca- came from was uh, the original title that i had uh, worked on that had come out of the aurora process was the wrongest guy mm. which is still a line in the film mm. that you know the 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 asshole um, radio star boyfriend catches her out when she's working on the radio with him and says, who's the wrongest guy you've ever dated? Yes. And then um, Travis picks up on that in one of his stand-up routines and he says, I may always be the wrongest guy, but. <laughs> um, and that that had been the title of the film. But there was a, a kind of a raft of other films with, you know, the other guy and the wrong girl and, mm-hmm. the, you know, that were too similar. Uh, so we decided we needed to come up with another title. Um and the, the character of Sunny originally had another name and we were just scouting around for s- things that had stand-up in them and they're standing up for her and... So, you know, we changed her name because we thought standing up for Sunny had a nice ring to it. There
0: you go, and it's nice and bright and shiny. Yeah, bright (laughs) and shiny like she is, yeah. Um, You managed to nab a bona fide uh, star in R.J. Mitty, and uh, I I read an interview with R.J. recently uh, where the interviewer asked him how he became involved in this film, and his answer was simply, they asked me to be in it. Um, (laughs) But but I imagine there's uh, more to the story from your point of view.
1: Um, Look, I, we were incredibly lucky with RJ um, because we were very committed to trying as much as possible for all the roles, not just for for his role, to work with actors um, who genuinely, you know, had the disability or had the experience um, of the characters. Um, and there are very few bona fide actors with low-grade cerebral palsy. There's quite a few stand-up comedians around the world, Mm -hmm. um, many of them with, you know, much more severe cerebral palsy. Um, But RJ is really the only name actor uh, with low-grade cerebral palsy, and we're incredibly lucky that he was our obvious first pick, um, not just because of his disability but because – um, you know, his temperament, it, just who he is as a person mm. is so, you know, very close to where that character is that he has that irrepressible sense of humour and wickedness and playfulness, uh, but also, you know, quite a fantastic sharp edge to him um, that, you know, he can he can turn on a dime between both of, you know, between those two uh, modes of being. And we went straight to him before anything else, before anybody else. We went to him and said, we really, really want you to be in this film. And essentially he read the script and came straight back to us and said, I love the script. Um, I'm really interested in be, being in it. Just want to meet the director and, you know, talk to you about how we're going to make this work. And we had a a brief Skype for about half an hour and he said, yep, I'm on. Let's do it. Wow
0: fantastic um, he, he RJ uh, seems to bring a lot of himself to this role uh, as an advocate for people mm. with disabilities his, his performance is phenomenal
1: yeah it's it's an incredible performance um, he is very how do I say this he, he is absolutely um Without hesitation um, in in bringing himself to the role, like he he's there's no kind of sense of self-protection in there. He is willing to kind of strip away layers of skin and show that vulnerability and show that anger and show that hurt and show you know all of all of the pain and indignation that comes from some of his own personal experiences of of being a kid growing up with CP. Mm. Uh,
0: Would you ever have considered uh, casting a a non-disabled actor?
1: Um, Yeah, well, if we had had to, we would have, Mm. but uh, I don't think we would have had to. Mm. We found um, a couple of backups who are not, Known actors, but our preference would have been rather than going to getting a name actor who would help us sell the film, we would have actually bit the bullet and gone with the unknown uh, actor who had CP because you know we felt so strongly about getting somebody uh, with a disability to play the role with a disability, and that um, you, you know you may be thinking of talking about this as well, but that also extended to uh, the role of Gordo, his, his blind roommate, mm. and we tested upwards of 30 uh, vision-impaired and blind people for that role, uh, but obviously the, the, uh, the pool of uh, vision-impaired and blind actors is even smaller mm. uh, than, the, than the pool of actors with CP and there just wasn't anybody in the age range and type for that character, with the you know the necessary chops to carry a role of that size, mm, mm. Um, Italia Hunt was was that his name? Italia, yeah, yes,
0: yeah. He, he's another one who gave a, a very convincing performance because I would have sworn that he was uh, blind in real life. Uh,
1: Italia is is absolute find. I mean, he's like he's like a giant living cartoon character. He's <laughs> hilarious and funny and witty and has great comic timing and is just the sweetest individual, mm. which is fortunate because he's a bloody giant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he he worked um, for about a week with one of the vision-impaired guys, a profoundly blind uh, guy who auditioned for the role but, you know, was, was very inexperienced and, um, as I said, just in terms of being able to hit the the beats and the moments that were required for the credibility of the performance, Mm. wasn't able to do that, but very generously said, look, I'll offer my services as a consultant. Mm. So Italia spent time with him um and basically got trained how to be a blind guy he uh, he he had to walk around with the guy being blind for a couple of days and went through the guy's daily routine you know walking to the shops catching the bus doing all of that stuff learning to use the the cane and you know look for the markers and the, you know, feel for the markers on the road and the the beepers on the crossings and all of that kind of stuff and and deal with bus drivers and shopkeepers and other pedestrians as a blind person, and he he took that that training very seriously.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I caught some behind the scenes footage recently, which shows all of the cast, including uh, uh, Philip and Northeast, actually, who we should mention. Uh, it must have been a, a relief for you that the chemistry between them all was um, you know was was very good.
1: Uh, it was magic from from the first moment they met, mm. and it is. It is such an unknown that you, especially when you're casting people from different countries. Italia um, did his screen test in Auckland. RJ didn't test, but he was in LA until rehearsals. Pip um, I got to meet in person and work with in the room, um, and we we looked at probably upwards of 50 young actresses for that role and some terrific, God, there are some amazingly talented <laughs> young women. Um, we are just absolutely crushing it in terms of producing amazing acting talent, and I think particularly the young women. Um, and yeah, she was a, she was a standout. She just had that bright, sparkly, irrepressible energy and playfulness, and then could just turn that, you know. Um, in, in the blink of an eye into something very dark and kind of self-loathing and uncertain and vulnerable. and She was amazing to work with, just a consummate mm. professional. Mm. But, yeah, as you say, the chemistry, you don't know. You have three individual people who are all fantastic mm. and sometimes you bring them into the room together and you kind of, you know, like mixing colours. You just end up with a mucky brown and sometimes you bring them together and you end up with this wonderful sparkling rainbow, which I I think is what we got. They just bounced off each other in a wonderful way.
0: They do. Um, I've got a couple more questions. Um, So, so Arj Barker, uh, Akmal and uh, Becky Lewis have this hilarious group cameo in the film. (laughs) Um, uh, It got me wondering uh, whether you're involved in the local stand-up comedy scene at all or or if you just thought uh, it would make a right setting for the film
1: <laughs> only in my rich fantasy life <laughs> right, right i i love stand-up i'm a i'm an avid stand-up audience member um uh, i'm a good laugher mm. and Part of me would love to do it. I think um, I'm going back to L.A. again um, later in the year, and I think I'll I'll bite the bullet there and do one of those, you know, Second City courses where they make you actually go out and do stand-up in a club, you know, on the open mic just to feel the pain. But I, I can't imagine anything more terrifying. I've been a performer for most of my life and I've sung and danced and acted and done, you know, (laughs) <laughs> all some very weird things on stage. But I can't imagine anything more exposing than than doing stand-up. So I just have the utmost respect for those
0: guys. Um, and speaking of cameos, uh, Barry Humphreys is another one in the film. Uh, yes. Did you write him into the script after you had cast Barry, or, or had he? Uh, how did that come about?
1: Um, well, the character <laughs> – <laughs> the character in the script had the fabulous name of Famous Comedian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, we were looking at uh, a low-budget film. We mm-hmm. knew from the model that we were working on, okay. this is a low-budget film. And the massive challenge that we then threw at the producers and and the casting director was, okay, here we are. We have a film with no money. <laughs> <laughs> Go and find us a famous comedian who's not earning, you know, zillions of dollars doing Hollywood movies or Netflix specials or uh, isn't too busy, you know, touring, doing Just for Laughs in the Edinburgh <laughs> Festival and get them to come out here for Tuppence halfpenny and, and be in my little film. Um, so they threw themselves diligently at this challenge and I'm very happy that they found uh, somebody with, with Barry's reputation and his uh, charisma and and
0: generosity. Wow. Wow. Must have been a real uh, thrill for you to have him on board.
1: Uh, it was a delight. He's mm. copped a little bit of flack for, you know, a couple of perhaps um, out-of-touch uh, comments that he's made about uh, gender fluidity. Mm. But he is uh, – a man in his 80s mm. who uh, has grown up with uh, a different world and is, I think, still kind of catching up to, as many of us are, catching up to where the world is taking us. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in every other way, he, you know, every dealing that I had with him, he was an absolute gentleman and sweetheart and and, you know, one of the kindest, gentlest people you could ever hope to meet. Wow.
0: Um, so 22 years later, uh, two films yeah. as a director, uh, will we have to wait until 2041 to see your next film?
1: Geez, I hope not. I mean, <laughs> you know, Clint Eastwood's still pumping them out at uh, at 89, so maybe I'll still be going, you know, uh, when I'm halfway there. But, uh, no, I, I hope it'll be a, a little bit quicker than that. <laughs> We hope so.
0: Um, Stephen, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It was uh, great to have you as a guest and uh, best of luck with the film. Thanks for having me and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and SoundCloud. For all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews, you can visit www.cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube at Cinema Australia.